Acts chapter 1. Let's just dive right in. The former account I made, O Theophilus. Now, if you weren't with us last Sunday, we established here in the first seven words some context by which the rest of the book, I think, takes on a little bit of a deeper part of meaning. First, we discussed that Luke is our author, and we discussed that Theophilus, though there are varying quality opinions as to who the identity of this man is, our position, uh, for the sake of our study, is that Theophilus was the Roman in charge. He was an official, uh, he opens Luke by saying, most excellent Theophilus, that Theophilus was an official Roman uh, kind of liaison for the trial of the Apostle Paul. The book of Acts closes with Paul on his way to Rome to have a trial before Caesar Nero. And we know that Paul was not just standing trial for his involvement of Christianity. He was standing trial for Christianity as a faith, as a religion, this new religion. And it seems from our estimation that Theophilus is probably in charge of preparing the documentation for the Apostle Paul's trial. If you examine both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts from that context, a lot of your questions are answered. A lot of context is established. We're not going to rehash it all. Uh, If you're interested, go back and listen to last Sunday's message. So I made Luke, O Theophilus, a former account. And then he continues by explaining or transitioning from the former account that we've established to be the Gospel of Luke to now the book of Acts. He continues, the former account of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, as with Mark, Luke opens his final chapter, Luke chapter 24, with the glorious resurrection of Jesus, only to then describe all, according to this this verse, all that Jesus began to both do and teach till the day he was taken up or his ascension. In the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we find, following the resurrection, specifically two post-resurrection appearances by the Christ. We find first Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then we see Jesus appearing later the same day to the disciples, the apostles, ten of them, excluding Thomas. Now, among these things, Luke says that Jesus through the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So that's the first thing he does. Then he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, chief of which was that he was seen by them during 40 days where he spoke to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. It appears that in both instances, both on uh, his appearance of the, uh, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, later to the disciples, that in both instances, Jesus were told, opened their understanding of all that they had just seen so that they might comprehend the scriptures. What was Jesus busy doing during the 40 days between resurrection and ascension? Well, Luke builds the case that he's teaching them some important things. He's opening their understanding 
by expounding to them from Scripture. Now notice that the former account concerned, look at it again, all that Jesus, what? Began both to do and to teach. Now this presents our first key to understanding this blueprint for the church. For we find that Luke is telling Theophilus in his introduction and his thesis that his gospel only described the beginning of Jesus's work. That the gospel of Luke, his whole purpose was to lay out the beginning of the story, the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the beginning of what he did and the beginning of what he taught, indicating now that the book of Acts would serve as the continuation of what he had begun both to do and to teach. Now, this has some incredible implications. If you notice in your Bible, sad to say, it's incorrectly titled. If you look, you'll find that your, your Bible defines Luke. It describes Luke. It titles the book of Acts as the Acts of the Disciples. This was first introduced in the second century, this title by Irenaeus. And though it's undeniable that the disciples would play a role. I mean, they were given the Great Commission for a reason. The book itself should more accurately be titled, not the Acts of the Disciples. Because what is Luke telling us? He's telling us right from the beginning that what I began to tell you in Luke of what Jesus both did and taught. Now I'm going to continue the same information now in the book of Acts. It should be titled, not the Acts of the Disciples, but instead the Acts of Jesus through the church. Mark 16 verse 20 tells us that following his ascension into heaven, that the followers of Christ, Mark's description of what takes place after the ascension, is that his disciples went out and preached everywhere, note, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. Now this phrase, working with, is the Greek word, sinjerino, which literally means to combine power with the express intention of creating a greater power. This Greek word, we get the English scientific term, synergy. Synergy is defined as the interaction of two or more forces so that their combined effect is greater than the sum of their individual effects. The Lord working with them. The Lord's work through them. But it's the Lord's work. And this is a, like a mind-blowing idea to me. Like of all the great mysteries that I find in the Bible, this is one that at least ranks in the top three. The fact that God decided that in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, that he made the decision that the most effective way to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ was to partner with us. That blows my mind. That God would choose when he could have reached the world in any way he wanted to, that he decided the most effective way would be to partner with you and me, human vessels. Now, please understand that there's a caveat to that. Understand it's his work and not mine. He uses me. 
He chooses me, he commissions me and equips me, but it's never my work. You know, a lot of ineffective ministry is accomplished when people get it all backwards. When they think that effective ministry is a partnership of God plus me, that we're on the same team, that it's me in the highest, that it's me and sovereign God out there kicking butt, taking names, but that's not true. You see, it's God through me, not God plus me. If you wanna be effective in ministry, realize that your only purpose is to be a conduit. It's kind of the old adage of John the Baptist, where John would say that for me, like my, my job is to decrease so that what? So that Jesus could increase. Like my job is just to get out of the way and not mess it up. My job is to be Jesus's hands and feet and to be his mouthpiece, but it's not to get in the way. It's not God plus me equals effective ministry. It's God through me equals effective ministry. And this has an interesting implication. Because if the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do, it's his work both to teach and, and to accomplish. Like Jesus is working through the book of Acts. He's choosing to work through the church, you and myself then that means if Acts is recording for us the story of Jesus working through his church, then in a sense, the book of Acts is unique to all of the books of scripture and that it's still being written if that's its ultimate purpose. If the ultimate purpose is to describe what Jesus is doing through the church to reach the world, then it doesn't end with chapter 28. But that in heaven, we're gonna get to this big book of the acts of Jesus through us, the church, and you're gonna have your own chapter. I wonder what it'll read. David Guzik said this, he says, there is a real sense in which the book of Acts continues to be written today, not in an authoritative scriptural sense, but in the sense of God's continued work in the world by his Holy Spirit through his church. Now, though the gospels, affirm that Jesus appeared to his followers on at least 11 different occasions through many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. Here in the book of Acts, Luke provides, us, provides the reader kind of a new detail, a new wrinkle that we weren't provided in the gospel narratives. And that is first the subject of what Jesus was teaching. We know he was teaching, but now Luke's giving us the subject matter and the motivation. First, the subject of his teaching. What was Jesus busy teaching the disciples during these 40 days? You would imagine that it's important. His final words, his final opportunity, we're told that Jesus spoke of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, we're not going to get into that a whole lot at the moment, but this will set the context for an interesting question that the disciples will ask in a few minutes. The second thing Luke tells us, aside from the subject of his teaching being the kingdom of God, Luke also provides the motivation of his teaching or for his teaching. We're told that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, that's important right from the beginning to make a distinction. Because I read a lot of commentators who in addressing this phrase, through the Holy Spirit, I think kind of twisted it and made it a little confusing. I mean, this is the post, 
resurrection, the glorified, heavenly, exalted Christ. And I think sometimes, even Bible scholars that I have a lot of admiration for get a few things confused and then produce some confusion when we're not defining phrases and words. For example, there is a distinction that I think it's important for us to make from the beginning between the phrase through the Holy Spirit versus the phrase by the Holy Spirit. Luke is not saying here that Jesus acted by the Holy Spirit. If he had wanted to, he would have used this word by, which means literally under or hippo. It would be a saying that Jesus acted under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Later in scripture, we're told that there were many writers of scripture who by the Holy Spirit wrote infallible scripture. But instead, Luke doesn't use this phrase by the Holy Spirit. He, he uses the phrase through the Holy Spirit or literally that the Holy Spirit was the reason that Jesus gave the commandment to the apostles. Let me simplify it. When we encounter the phrase by the Holy Spirit, it serves to signify an action done under the Spirit's power or the Spirit's influence, that I'm doing something by the Holy Spirit. Whereas the phrase that we find here, through the Holy Spirit, it signifies an act done as a result of the Holy Spirit's directive. One done through his power or influence, the other done through his directive. Think of it in this way. What we find here is that Jesus, what he's about to say, he's communicating because the Holy Spirit has prompted him to. That the rest of the command, what's about to follow, sets the context for the Holy Spirit is telling Jesus, I need these guys to know a few things. It's a directive, not an influence. So we read, and being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him and they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now let's start by setting the scene. Set the scene. Over the last 40 days, the resurrected Jesus, he's been playing like a wicked game of Gaia. I mean, Jesus is appearing and disappearing without any announcement, whenever he wants to, without really much of a schedule. I mean, from an upper room in Jerusalem to when there's 10 assembled to when there's 11 assembled, when Thomas is there, Thomas is not, Jesus just, boom, appears. Ba-pow! They're shocked. Does his thing, says what he needs to say, and then, da-dum, he's gone again. From Jerusalem and upper room to boom, again, like they're out fishing on a sh uh, in the Sea of Galilee and on the shore, there's Jesus out of nowhere, cooking fish, ba-pow, gotcha. I mean, he's coming and he's going, coming and going. No announcement. And yet, something interesting is happening here. 
Because this phrase, and being assembled together, being assembled together is one Greek phrase. It indicates a break from kind of what had become the normal procedure of Jesus coming and going. That something here is happening very deliberate. Luke is telling us that in this instance, Jesus gathered his followers together. This act, it was deliberate. It was intentional. It was scheduled. Jesus had put it into Gmail and propagated it out to everyone else. Everyone was gathering for this moment at this time. It was not an appearance and a disappearance. It was we're gathering for a purpose. Now, though we have no idea how many people are gathered together, some would say 120. They get that number mainly because uh, the next chapter when we find uh, maybe the same group in the upper room, there's 120 gathered. So the thought process is that the same group here uh, just goes to the upper room. Uh, others think that maybe it's 500 people are gathered because of 1 Corinthians 15 when the Apostle Paul says that he appeared to 500 at once gathered together. Either way, it doesn't matter. There's a group. Jesus has called them to, as one. And according to the context, it's provided in Acts 1 verse 12 and Luke 24 verse 50, Jesus is meeting with this multitude on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives near the town of Bethany. So the scene. Now let's unpack the text. Because in this exchange between Jesus and this group gathered, two topics emerge, come to the forefront. First, the Holy Spirit, which seems to be the subject of concern for Jesus. And secondly, the kingdom of God, which seems to be the subject of concern for the disciples. Now, before ascending, the Holy Spirit directing Jesus to give them a command, he tells them to do two things. I'm about to leave. You need to go back to Jerusalem. So return to Jerusalem and wait there. Why? for the promise of the Father. And then he elaborates upon this topic. We can break it down ultimately into three sections. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down. But three lessons Jesus kind of lays out concerning the Holy Spirit. First, Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit to the disciples, kind of gives them a, a welcoming, a warming. He tells them to go wait, but for whom? He calls the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. This word promise is the Greek noun meaning the fulfillment of a promise that's been given. And so the reference, the way it's set up, is that this was a promise that God had made to the people of Israel that they were to be waiting for and looking towards. As students of Scripture, what had God promised? He had promised, according to Ezekiel 36, that the Holy Spirit would indwell his people as part of the kingdom of God, as part of this new covenant that God was doing through Jesus. Ezekiel 36, we're told that I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean and I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you, note, a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them and you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And so in the Old Testament, we find that there was a promise. The promise was that the Holy Spirit would come to indwell the people of God. For what purpose? So that they could obey the commandments. For centuries, they had been trying and trying and trying to obey the commandments and they had failed miserably. And so the promise is that at some point, the spirit of God will come. I will send him. He will fill you and cleanse you and make you new and give you a new heart and a new stature so that you can follow me and obey me and be my people. Jesus picked up on this entire promise in Luke chapter 11. He said, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, thank you Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give? And note the gift the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So Jesus starts by giving an introduction. You need to go wait for the promise of the Father, this Old Testament promise that God had given, that I had reiterated, that I had taught you. Go and wait for the Holy Spirit, the sanctified spirit, the set-apart spirit, a new spirit. And then Jesus says, or he defines, now our interactions with the Holy Spirit. Go and wait, why? for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Now, in order to understand what this phrase means, and thus really the interactions that we have in Scripture with the Holy Spirit, you should note that there are three Greek prepositions that are used in conjuncture with our interactions with the Spirit of God. And these three Greek prepositions enable us to differentiate between what's happening when in regards to what we see with the Holy Spirit. First, you will find the Greek word para. It is the English word with. It means to come alongside of. This word describes the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, convicting the world of sin for the purpose of drawing mankind to Christ. We've all experienced this. Every single one of you have, have experienced this interaction with the Holy Spirit. It's that little voice that tells you that what you're about to do is wrong, that I shouldn't do what I'm about to do, that I know that's not good for me, I know that's not what God wants for me, but you know, I'm gonna do it anyway. And then the Holy Spirit continues that work because when we resist him, we do what we know we shouldn't do anyway, then the Holy Spirit gives us conviction. We've all experienced that. I do something I know I shouldn't have done or even thought maybe I shouldn't have done, and then after the fact, I felt horrible about it. I just kind of felt like crap. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the world. He's with us, interacting with everyone, convicting of sin for the purpose of drawing us to Jesus. The second preposition that we'll find is the word in, E-N in the Greek. It's the English word, I-N, in. It literally means to come within. So the first, to come alongside of, now to come within. This word describes the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer at the point of conversion for the purpose of salvation and regeneration. 
This word para, let me give you an example of it. John 14, verse 17, we, we read that the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for first he dwells with you, para. He dwells with you. But now, if you continue reading John 14, he dwells with you and a second interaction will be in you. It's the second word. Now, when did this happen for this group of believers, this group of apostles, followers of Christ? Well, John 20, verse 22, tells us that when Jesus had said this, one of his post-resurrection appearances, we're told that he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this provides some confusion, because wait a second. If this group of people has, they've received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come Within them, I would imagine that if Jesus breathes on you, says receive the Holy Spirit, that you are receiving the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's a lot of confusion there. So if that's happening in John 20, then why now is Jesus telling them to go and now wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them? Well, because there's a third preposition. You have para, or the Holy Spirit being with us, convicting us. At salvation, you have this, this work of the Holy Spirit coming within me, coming inside of me, indwelling me. Re regeneration, salvation, this fulfillment of what Ezekiel predicts, where this old heart is removed and a new heart is placed inside of me, where my old desires are replaced with godly desires, where my old, dead, corrupted cringy spirit is replaced with the spirit of God, the spirit in me. So there's conviction. And then I come to the cross and I surrender and I'm born again. That's the whole idea. I'm regenerated. But now we find a third word because what is Jesus telling them to go wait for? Well, this word upon is the Greek word epi. It's an entirely different word to describe an entirely different interaction. It means to come over. So first we have to come alongside of, and then we have to come within, and now we have to come over. And this word describes the work of the Holy Spirit overflowing the life of the believer for the purpose of power in our time of need. Acts chapter one, verse eight, they're to go to Jerusalem to wait to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, not para, not in, but instead epi, or upon you. What's described here is often described in other places with the phrase, the filling of the Holy Spirit. That there is this filling, that the Spirit's within me, but in moments the Holy Spirit just begins to pour in. And as he's pouring in, he begins to overflow. And when he's overflowing, he's beginning to affect others around me. That there's moments where I'm just, I'm overcome. I'm, I'm filled to capacity. I'm filled to overflowing. Now the question ends up being, is this a one-time thing? I don't think so. I don't think so because that's not what the book of Acts seems to tell us. So they're to go to Jerusalem and wait. And then in Acts chapter two, we're told that the Holy Spirit comes upon these believers, the apostles, the disciples, this group of 120. But then note, we're told in Acts four, verse eight, that what happens? That Peter, 
He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says to them, he's been arrested. He's standing before the same group of people that executed Jesus. He's in a time of need. He needs power. He needs boldness. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him again and fills him. And he begins to overflow because what he has to say is powerful. And it is totally contrary to the Peter we've ever known beforehand. So something unique happens here. But he's filled again. But he's filled in Acts 2. He's filled in chapter 4. A few verses later. Peter's released, we're told in Acts 4, verse 31, that they're all gathered together again. They're praying, and the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so you seem to find over and over and over again this phrase that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then when they had a moment where they needed God's strength, they were filled again with the Holy Spirit. And when they were feeling depressed and down and out, what happened? They were filled again with the Spirit. And when they were struggling in the flood, they were filled again with the Spirit. That the Spirit is in the world, convicting the world of sin, bringing us to Christ. And then he comes in us and saves us and regenerates us. But there are times in the life that Christ has called us to that we need that fresh filling, that we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Now the question is, how do I get this? How do I get it? How do I get this fresh filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, in Luke chapter 11, the passage that we read, Jesus was clear. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to whom? To those who ask him. And then in this passage, Jesus says that you should go to Jerusalem and do what? And shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Please understand that a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit is a matter of you asking for it and then receiving it. The promise of the Father, it's a gift. It's a gift God is giving you to be accepted or to be rejected. It's not, though, something to be earned or something that I deserve or something that I can conjure up. There are many kind of crazy, wacko denominations that exist within Christianity that frame this gifting, this overflowing of the Holy Spirit as something that you can only get if you dance a jig a certain way or if you have a tambourine of some kind. I don't get it. When it's said that it is a gift, I ask for and then receive. So Jesus first, he introduces the Holy Spirit and then he kind of lays out this interaction with the Holy Spirit. But now he describes the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And Jesus indicates that the results would be twofold. First, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And secondly, they would then receive power to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, some Bible teachers would place the discussion that's commonly known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit under the category of our interactions with the Spirit. And yet, I disagree. Jesus introduces this idea of this baptism in a way that I think challenges that common misconception. He sets up a comparison. Did you see it? He says, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus said, look at it, you shall be baptized, what? With the Holy Spirit. 
He didn't say you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit or that it's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying the Spirit coming upon the believer, this overflowing, has a similar effect or he places this imagery of John's baptizing with water. Now in Mark chapter 1, we're told that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance of sins. And he preached, I indeed baptize you with water, but he, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism with water, it was all about demonstrating, and note, an outward repentance for sins. It was an outward demonstration. It was an outward uh, statement. It was outwardly communicating that I'm turning from my sin. However, being baptized with the Holy Spirit was all about experiencing an inward purification from sin. So John's baptism with water was an outward demonstration of repentance from sin or for sin. The Holy Spirit, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, was about experiencing inward purification. Baptism with water served to cleanse the outer man. Get some dial soap, some shampoo. You can figure that out on your own. Baptism with water cleanses the outside, but baptism with the Spirit served to cleanse the inner man. Now, describing the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believer using this phrase, baptism, I don't think it was an accident. Nor do I think that Jesus waiting specifically 40 days. I mean, you gotta think for a moment. The Holy Spirit being such a big deal, right? To the point that he's gonna ascend, they need to go wait. And this whole deal has been orchestrated. It's been timed. Jesus has waited 40 days. Why 40 days for this moment? I don't think it being 40 days is an accident any more than Jesus using this phrase baptism. Throughout the Old Testament, the number 40 represented a new spiritual beginning. I even read one rabbi who claimed that the number 40 had the power to lift a person up in their spiritual state. Now, according to Hebrew tradition, if a person was considered to be ceremonially unclean, they were required to immerse themselves in a pool of water known as a mikvah before they were allowed to enter the temple. The act of bathing or immersing themselves in the water was a sign, it was signifying a cleansing and a purity before they could go in and do what they needed to. The priests were required to bathe before performing religious duties. Men were required to bathe before offering sacrifices. Women were required to bathe in the mikvah uh, following childbirth. Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism had to come to the temple and be bathed or immersed into one of these mikvah. And you can see the actual ruins of them outside of the Temple Mount today. Gentiles would be bathed to signify a conversion to Judaism. In every instance, the act itself, this traditional proceeding was known, it was called, it was referred to as a baptism. The Talmud stated that a mikvah, as the consummate Jewish symbol of spiritual renewal, had to be filled with no more or no less 
Then 40 shias of water. That was a measurement in the day for water. 40. Hmm. You know, the tradition itself found precedent, according to the Jews, in the story of Noah. You know the story. The rain poured for how many days? 40 days. And what did it do? It submerged the whole world with water. In essence, the whole world was baptized. And when the waters finally subsided, what was the result? The earth had been spiritually purified. It had been purified from vileness, the vileness that had corrupted it in the days of Noah. In essence, this baptism, 40 days, it signified spiritual renewal. And there was an interesting design quality of the mikvah. Because the rabbis believed that impurities required living water, things like springs or underground water sources to really purify, that it couldn't be stale water. Because if it was stale water and I get in and I might be clean, now you're getting cleansed in my muck, right? So who wants to bathe in a bath that's been used many times beforehand? And so the mikvah was designed in the temple by Herod to always be connected to a underground spring so that the water was always circulating. Think about it. Water to be baptized, to be cleansed. The most potent kind of water was living water. And who defines himself as living water? That being Jesus. See, understand when Jesus mentioned 40 days later, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They knew from the word baptism, from the timing, they knew that Jesus was telling them that what would come, the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them would be spiritual renewal and purification, which tells us that the first result of being baptized with the Spirit is that we receive a renewing of our spirit by God. And then the second result would be, look, that they would receive power to be witnesses to me. This word power, it's the Greek word dynamis. It's literally the word that we get dynamite from, that they would go and they would receive dynamite. Power, power. And for what reason? Why would they receive power? You know, people say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they use that for all kinds of things that I don't think Jesus cares about giving them strength to do. I can receive all, like, strength in Christ. I can run the 40 and 4.2 seconds, and I can catch that pass. I'll blow up that person with the power of the Holy Spirit. That the, like, like, we just, we, we say that the Holy Spirit, we get this power. And we kind of think that we now have the right to do what we want to with it. You give me power? I'm going to lift up a car or tear a phone book in half. Power. Remember the power team? Like, I got power. And yet we're told here what? That they would receive power for a purpose, right? Not to tear up a phone book. The power of the Holy Spirit would come so that they could be witnesses to me. This word witness, it's the Greek word that we get the English word martyr from. Wait a second. You're telling me that I'm going to get power to be a martyr? That's exactly what Jesus is telling you. Not just me. You see, the word describes someone who dies for another. And in context, a witness 
is literally a person who has laid down his life for Jesus. He says to be witnesses, where? To the world? No, no, you're to be a witness to whom? To Jesus. To be witnesses to me, to receive power, to be a witness to Jesus. Jesus is saying that we're to, and note, be witnesses. There's a big difference between being something and doing something. The word here, it describes who you are, not necessarily what you're doing. You see, martyrdom isn't something that you go out and do. It's a result of who you are. And so wait, if I'm going to be a martyr for Jesus, if I'm going to die to self and live for Christ, (laughs) I can't do that. And myself, I mean, good grief, I try and I try and I try to do good things for God and I fail all the time. So how in the world am I gonna have the power to be able to die to self and live as a martyr for Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And if you ask, you should receive. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, note, you shall be witnesses. This is not a command. Jesus is not telling you, go out and be a witness. Because it's not something you do, it's something you are. You shall be witnesses. It's not a command. It's a statement of fact. It's a description of the result. The words, you shall be, are not in the indicative, but the imperative. Or in the indicative, not the imperative. Jesus wasn't recommending that we become witnesses He said we would be witnesses if we received the Holy Spirit's power. And note that we would receive this to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. Note, this is not a series of destinations that Jesus was commanding the disciples now to go out into the world to be a witness to. Matter of fact, you can actually say that it's a statement describing where these witnesses would end up going because it kind of lays out the blueprint for the rest of the book of Acts. Acts chapter one through seven describes the gospel in Jerusalem, witnesses in Jerusalem. Then Acts chapter eight, verse 12, describes witnesses that are in Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through 28 speaks of witnesses going out into the ends of the earth. And so the second result of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believer is that the believer should receive power, enabling them to die to self and to live for Christ and understand this is the very example that Jesus gave for us. You know, before he began his ministry, Jesus, the ultimate witness to die the ultimate death, the ultimate martyrdom for his father. Before he started, what happened? Well, Mark 1, verse 10, we read, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending. I wonder what word would be used? Upon him as a dove. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and enabled him to live the life of ultimate martyrdom. If Jesus couldn't do it without the spirit coming upon him, you're foolish to think that you can do it on your own the meaning. In conclusion, what is God saying to our church through this passage? 
I think it's simple. And if I ruffle your feathers here, I don't mean to, I just mean to be real. If the individuals who make up the church, our church, you and me, if we aren't experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, then our church becomes nothing more than a spiritual nursing home whose principal purpose becomes caring for the dying, powerless, often cranky people. I don't want to be a church for the dying. I want to be a church for the living, for those who are being filled with the Spirit, who are being empowered and renewed and enabled to go out and to live a life for Jesus. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of, a church that demonstrates Holy Spirit power because that's the blueprint that Jesus has for the church. But then we must ask, what is the personal application? When it comes to the Great Commission, Acts chapter 1 is clear that we're to be a witness to Jesus wherever we happen to be. Jesus is not commanding us to go anywhere. He's not necessarily telling us to go do anything. Jesus is simply asking us to live a life of martyrdom, to die to self and to live for him and the world that he's placed us in. Now, though the commission seems simple enough, Jesus realized that in and of ourselves, we would be incapable of fulfilling even the simple command. Please understand this morning that the Holy Spirit, it convicts of sin, para. The Holy Spirit saves us from sin, comes within. But the Holy Spirit is also willingly to constantly fill you up to overflowing, epi. So that why? So that I can have the power to live the life that he's called me to. And that secondly, I might experience a fresh spiritual renewal when I'm feeling empty. This morning, we're gonna spend a minute worshiping the Lord. And I wanna tell you that if you are feeling powerless, if you are frustrated, if the life that Jesus has called you to, you feel more failure than success, more idiot than victor, if you're feeling burnout, tapped out, spiritually stale, please know that the Holy Spirit this morning is more than willing to come upon you, to immerse you in his love, to immerse you in his grace, to immerse you in a peace that passes understanding, to renew your soul, that he wants to do that this morning. But here's the key. Will you ask? And then will you receive? You know, they call it an afterglow. I don't really even know where the phrase came from. I think in some ways it might be silly. It describes just a time after the Bible study where we can sit and pray and meditate on what he's saying to us and take time to say, Jesus, I can't do this. I'm so tired. I've been doing it on my own and I can't make it anymore. So will you fill me? Will you come upon me? 
because I need it desperately. And it gives us an opportunity before we leave to sit and to wait and to ask and then receive. And so, Father, Lord, we ask that you would meet us here this morning, that you might accomplish that purpose in this place. In Jesus' name.